everybody, this is Brady Dale, and welcome to Lightbulb Talks. Um, so, welcome to the um, welcome to the session tonight. We're going to welcome on uh, Lily Lou pretty second pretty soon. Just beforehand, uh, you know, I like to start these things off with talking about a thing, talking about the idea of. Um, of feelings uh, as they relate to cryptocurrency, like emotions in this space, um, because I sort of think that is like an under-discussed thing in this very rational world. And tonight I was thinking about sort of the idea of like that moment in which you can finally feel something as like real, you know, Um, like, and that's so important with crypto because there's all this doubt about, kind of where the value comes from. Um, Like, you know, we still fret to this day about like, why is Bitcoin worth anything? And believe me, if you dig deeper into this stuff, um, you'll start to see more and more ways in which that's relevant. Like in DeFi, there's all these tokens that, you know, they pull value out of the craziest stuff. And so you're like, um, how can that value really be real? Um, but then, uh, you know, I, I heard this story this week on this podcast, the Hermetics podcast, and, and uh, they were talking about the moment in time when, like, the alphabet started to be introduced uh, in parts of the world where they didn't have it. And 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 folks didn't know how to conceptualize this, uh, conceptualize this idea of, like, words being made permanent. You know, they sort of pictured it as, like, some kind of way of freezing time, right? Uh, but then you get it, and you kind of can't unsee it anymore like things it it's real now forever and that's like a a weird transition that happens inside of us and i think it's a critical part of that whole like getting crypto thing um so this is the thing i've been kind of wondering about a ton over the last year as i write about the crazy stuff they're doing on ethereum with decentralized finance um but i think it's also a worthwhile thing to talk about uh here as we talk about uh bitcoin as a macro topic tonight and that's what we're going to do uh with lily lou i see that she's here and other folks are joining us now um so yeah i have uh really enjoyed the times that i've gotten to see lily speak at different events in the crypto space i think she's got a unique vibe and hopefully you'll see that tonight and a unique way of seeing some of the um, critical questions in our space. Uh, So just for folks who don't know her, uh, just a a quick item on her background, you know, she, uh, she was a part of the team that transitioned 21 co, which was a Bitcoin mining company to earn.com and earn, you know, gave people a way to earn Bitcoin with some of their time, you know, primarily it started out with, you know, you, you gave people a little Bitcoin to read your email and reply to you. Right. And that was acquired by Coinbase, you know, obviously, um, entered into sort of the, the giants of the space. Uh, and uh, since then, a- Lily has been an angel investor. I've been studying her background a little bit more this week, learned that prior to crypto, uh, she was working in healthcare, setting up a hospital in China, which is uh, fascinating. And she said that gave her some insights on why Bitcoin might matter as she first discovered it, and has recently kind of returned to that uh, sort of healthcare logistics in a way, uh, because she's been helping the world uh, get access to protective um, masks and clothing as they deal with the COVID crisis. So um, that's all pretty fascinating. So uh, welcome, Lily. Thanks for being here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brady. I'm, I'm psyched to talk to you. Um, <laughs> there's a ton of things that I want to talk to you about. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I really like once the news broke uh, two nights ago, I couldn't wait to talk to you about this. I just want you to just brain just brain dump for me on this El Salvador news. That feels like a, a thing that I, I want to hear what Lily Lou thinks about. So 
tell me tell me yeah. where your mind's at on that yeah um well i mean kind of kind of amazing right um that's yeah. like I think that a major drop because if uh, if you remember i forget which year it was um that el salvador adopted the dollar right um and so you know el salvador uh has like many Latin American countries, um, and, you know, like many sort of uh, developing countries, has a long history of economic mismanagement. Uh, kind of this dilemma of small country um, with uh, with a currency that doesn't have a lot of heft when it comes to international trade, and you know, oftentimes corrupt for political purposes, so on and so forth. You know, a story that many of us in cryptocurrency um, have. Uh, it's mo- motivated our interest in cryptocurrency, motivated our continued interest, and uh, and something that seems to seems to matter to a lot of people in cryptocurrency, right? Yeah. So they transitioned to the dollar. Um, was it a two thousand eight or something like that? I honestly have uh, no idea. I should have looked that up. Yeah. Right. Um, I should have I should have looked that up as well. But at some point, transitioned to the dollar. Uh, and for them to transition in, you know, probably about a decade's time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not a full transition, but let's just call it diversification mm-hmm. um, to a uh, to a uh, an additional global settlement currency, right? With upside, um, I think is pretty tremendous. And so, you know, I just feel like over the last 12 to 24 months, a lot of the stuff that people who got into Bitcoin early were talking about, where we sounded crazy for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? Talking about censorship resistance, um, talking about sovereignty, talking about sort of nation states um, either protecting their own sovereignty, right, or fundamentally changing the relationship between the nation state and um, and the governed. A lot of that sounded so theoretical and uh, and sounded, you know, I've, I've heard it all sort of, oh, neo-libertarian, anarchist, anti-government, um, you know, generally not sort of perceived in a very positive manner. Uh, and over the last 20, 12 to 24 months, just so much of that has accelerated um, in a direction that previously was seen as pretty crazy, I'm going to be mm-hmm. honest. And, you know, I don't know what you th- think about this. I, th- I'll tell you this really specific thing that kind of surprised me um, going in um, uh, is, uh, oh, wow, I misspelled your name. And I, I know the right way to spell it. I'm sorry about that. Um, no worries. I, I blame that on Apple. Uh, that, <laughs> was, that was not my fault. You know, um, I've been called Lucy Lou more than, more times than I can remember. So I, I never uh, had, I have, I think, a pretty normal name. I mean, it's in a major American television show, The Brady Bunch. And I never had a single substitute teacher ever pronounce it right. So, um, you know, uh, under, understood. But um, but listen, so the, the thing that surprised me about this, I don't know what your reaction is to this. Um, and, and I'll say I'm glad I was surprised. One of the things I love about technology in general and crypto in particular is like nothing ever goes the way that seems logical. But what I thought the logical order of operations was for governments to start taking crypto seriously is I thought some small country, you know, I think Jamaica has kind of made noises along these ways with a small central bank and a basket of reserve currencies would just buy a little Bitcoin and add it to their reserve supply, you know? And I thought mm-hmm. that would be the first step to a government government saying, okay, this stuff is kind of okay. I didn't think the first real nation state would come out and say, like, actually, this is legal tender now. And if you're a merchant, you need to figure out a way to accept it because... That's what legal tender is. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Like, would you? Um, have- I'll say. I think I, I need to. Um, 
Yeah, um, I think that you know the sort of accumulate uh, nation states accumulating Bitcoin as in the same way that they uh, many countries have um, gold in their reserves. Um, I think that that one. Uh, I honestly, I think that there's probably a number of countries out there that are already doing that. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't be. I, well, let me put it this way: I wouldn't be surprised if there were a number of uh, a number of countries already doing that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and there's also a number of countries, usually. So, for example, Caribbean countries. Um, the big one was obviously China, sort of taking blockchain and uh, and making uh, you know, central digital bank currency out of it. Um, and uh, you know, perhaps El Salvador really thought about it in terms of well, other folks are doing a C uh, um, CBDC. We don't really have our own issued fiat anymore, and uh, and so you know, then the option space is we're going we can try to you know digitize the dollar but that's not really our our role in the world so next option is bitcoin Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and i mean it seems like there's a level on which uh the president of el salvador i'm probably gonna say his name wrong but bukele or uh whatever it is uh it's it seems like he's a very media savvy guy and and it seems reasonable to read into this some level that this is him trying to make a bold move so that he has a bigger position on the international stage. I don't know if that feels, if you feel like that matters at all to should matter at all to Bitcoiners is like, does that minimize the move in any way? If, if that were a part of his motivation, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading a little bit of the news about this now. Uh, he's 39 years old. And so I think he's certainly, I think that still makes him a you know millennial technically. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin and its adoption has always been so much about marketing, not just Bitcoin, uh, all of cryptocurrency, really so much about marketing. Um, and you know, part of it, I think that is oftentimes portrayed in a somewhat negative light because it seems like it's shilling. Right. And mm-hmm. to, to be fair, there's a good part of that, which is happening in the ecosystem, most definitely. Uh, but on the other hand, if money is a social construct, right, and that's something that we oftentimes talk about, and, uh, and I think now increasing number of people kind of see that, uh, that the, the value of uh, a paper, you know, $20 bill is um, re- really our mutual uh, faith in that being worth $20 and what you can barter that for, right? Yeah. Um, so, I think, um, so I think that as, as more people sort of very consciously um, acknowledge that money is a social construct, then this whole sort of marketing around, around cryptocurrency is... Well, you know, like it or like it or hate it, um, honestly, a part of the process of imbuing it with value, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I look at this, it says remittances account for about twenty percent of GDP, um, and uh, and I think you know a, a broader theme here, which I think in about twenty or thirty years, unless we get our stuff together here in the U.S. with regards to mon- macroeconomic policy, is going to become a little bit of a problem for us, right? Uh, because, you know, uh, the, this sort of consensus of value on the dollar, I think we've been working pretty hard to undermine that over the last 12 months in earnest. And prior to that, for about, you know, really ever since the, 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 van, uh, the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And so now, um, you know, China, El Salvador, and probably a bunch of countries in the middle, you know, for example, a country like China, uh, 40% of their GDP is either imports or exports. So that essentially means that they have to finance the debt of their uh, of their uh, global competitor, their number one competitor, 
in order to uh, go about daily life. And that's a pretty raw deal. So they're kind of tied into the system where they've got to buy and sell dollars and essentially support our economy. And then uh, they, uh, they you know, may basically need to keep some sort of foreign currency reserves. And then the really only thing that you can do with those however many billions of dollars of currency reserves um, is to go buy T-bills, right? So they're kind of locked into um, this flywheel that we've created for ourselves here in America. Uh, and, you know, as soon as they start to untether themselves, um, I've also read about a couple of um, examples where they and Russia, for example, are... Um, are finding other ways to settle um, uh, um, oil and gas kind of trading between Russia as a, as a gas-rich country oh. and China. Um, but uh, as they find various ways to sort of untether themselves from the dollar, then that kind of breaks this whole uh, flywheel that we have here in the U.S., right? China would be a massive, a massive crack in that, which also means that financing our ballooning debt um, is... Uh, it may, right? And if they're successful in China with the central bank digital currency, um, then it would, uh, you know, put a major crack into that whole system. Um, so, you know, when you look at that, and I, I think that China on that issue is pretty darn committed, right? Pretty darn committed. Um, uh, then, and then you look, you take a look and see what we're doing here, with economic policy and spending money like it grows on trees and mm -hmm. spending money as if, uh, as if it's, uh, not worth anything, you do that enough. And at some point it's not going to be worth very much anymore. So, um, so that's, that's one of the things that I see going on. And that's probably what El Salvador is thinking about as well. Right. Um, the dollar is better than what I used to have. Uh, but maybe I should diversify away from the dollar. And I think that is the very simple narrative that's really taken hold with famous investors, people who run very large hedge funds, all the way to ordinary people who just look at this and say, I don't need a PhD in economics to know that money doesn't grow on trees. Right. Though it has been, I mean, I will say, I mean, I agree with you, but it, it has been a weird decade in which you know, we've all been like, when's the inflation going to kick in? Because this is strange, you know, um, mm -hmm. but it does feel like it is, you know, like the chickens do come home to roost eventually. Um, I have a, this is a small thing or maybe it's a big thing. I don't know, but I have a friend who um, she's quite smart about Bitcoin and she also has a particular thing for volcanoes in a funny way. So she got very excited with this volcanoes thing and really started thinking about it. And she said to me, and I thought this was really smart. She was just like, she was like, in a way, El Salvador is energy rich. It's just a very hard to move energy. And Bitcoin could give mm -hmm. them a way to actually export that energy, which is just, you know, geothermal heat. But but electricity mm -hmm. is hard to move around. But Bitcoin yes. makes it portal portable. So that that's yep. pretty compelling, right? I mean, yeah. Yep. Yep, for sure. And I remember back in 2015, when I uh, when I was starting to kind of just come back to the US from China, I said, money 2020, I met a fellow named uh, Chandler, uh, Chandler Guo, who uh, was one of, I think, you know, the earliest, uh, Bitcoin evangelist in China. Uh, so I met him and, uh, and I was, you know, thinking about what exactly is going to land in the space. He's, he's very charismatic, very persuasive. And he was just like, look, you know, I see Bitcoin, it's an energy battery. Um, right. and, uh, and that's, um, to an extent that's kind of true. And that's kind of an amazing way to frame it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I need to, I need to 
um, get to, um, I need to get to my favorites here so I can start sharing some of your, um, tweets, but you had a great one on that energy topic and Elon Musk, uh, this week where, um, saying that, you know, you knew about Bitcoin for like three months or however long, you know, he'd been invested in it. Uh, but you didn't know what this whole energy thing was like saying you didn't know where meat came from. Uh, I really, I really appreciated that. Um, <laughs> that was, that was a good one. Um, actually, let's start with just so folks can see it, your appearance on um, on Bloomberg this week. I want to share that to the space. Um, but so like, how, I don't know if you have a take on this. This is a pretty complicated question. But do you have any sort of thesis on like, okay, so merchants start to like create a Bitcoin infrastructure that will obviously take a little while. Apparently, Jack Mollers is going to help folks with that, but it would take a while. It's a country of like 6 million people. I don't know. What's your time frame on sort of the Bitcoin network feeling an impact of that kind of starting to take hold there. Any, any opinion there? So it's hard for me to tease out what is going to be El Salvador versus, you know, the, the 50, many, many other factors that influence on the Bitcoin marketplace. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so ultimately this whole thing, uh, and price action comes down to, well, you know, supply and demand on any given day, uh, and so ultimately, I think the, the largest impact that El Salvador is going to have is more second or third order in terms of uh, creating, restoring um, some of the excitement uh, about Bitcoin that uh, a couple of weeks ago left, uh, left the barn for a moment. Um, and uh, so I think it really just reinforces the why are, why are we all here? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, was 60K way too crazy? Should we settle around 30 or 40K? Um, I still, we're still very clearly within that technical band of 30K to, you know, call it whether it's 30 on 40 or 42, uh, depending on who's defining that. We're still bouncing in that band. Um, and so, you know, to me, this El Salvador news near term uh, has a similar effect as, you know, for example, what um, uh, uh, Elon Musk the a lot of the other FUD that came out a few weeks ago. These are all sort of short-term use events that will always kind of push it within a band or potentially push it out of a band. Uh, but long term, it um, it starts to really fill in this narrative that for those of us uh, uh, who've been here for a bit, that you know maybe we're not so crazy after all. Totally. And on that, for people who've been here for a bit, I will say. I mean, I know there's the whole sell the news thing and whatever, but. Um, you know, I wasn't paying super close attention to Bitcoin Miami. I wasn't there. Um, mm -hmm. And I woke up then I think it was Monday morning. Like, I think we put out that. I don't know when we put out. The, anyway, I saw the post a little while after Coindesk put it up because we did have some people there and they reported it um, that, you know, this announcement. And I was like, holy moly, like this seems like gigantic. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, but the markets barely reacted. Can you get, can you give any context? For, I, even I and I've been around for a minute. I was a little confused by that. Um, so, um, I think there was some sort of reaction. Um, look, I'm, uh, um, I'm always, you know, learning a little bit more of the technical side of, of how this stuff works, um, from, uh, but from, you know, the way I look at this and, uh, I think we all look at charts more often than we thought we would. Um, there's a kind of a, there's a low around 30, 31. So we got down to that. I think, uh, um, was it Tuesday morning, something like that. Uh, and it started to rise a bit. And then when the El Salvador news came out, I think we we're around 34, 35. And it actually did push us up um, a few thousand dollars. Okay. Um, and so I think it did have, you know, that kind of, you know, effect on the day. Um, and uh, and I think if I'm looking at this, I think we got up to about 38.5. Uh, and we seem to be floating down right now. So 
to me, it seems like we're still pretty comfortably within that band of 30 to 40. Hmm. I guess I and, felt like it was like back over 40 news, but this is, I'm not a TA guy. I don't really get these things super well, but I was just <laughs> like, I don't know. This, this seems like back over 40 news to me. I, I guess I'm wrong, but. Right. You know, it's really, it's really hard to say. Um, but uh, I think that, I think that the technical bands in crypto matter, uh, that to me is kind of, of uh, that's the primary structure of the market. And then to me, the news fits within that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, so certain news, you know, say we were at, if we were at, you know, like 41, then that may have pushed us over 42 and then we would be in a new band. Right. Mm-hmm. So this kind of pushed us within the band, in my opinion, and not, of course, none of this is financial advice. Um, but then, uh, so it kind of pushes up in the band, but we still kind of got rejected at um, the 38, 39, which if you look back, a number of days or a number of weeks um, has been a pretty tough level to crack. Hmm. Okay. Um, So just to pause here for a little bit of transition and just to say hello to everyone who's here. Um, So uh, I'm going to, we're going to open this up for folks to make comments or ask questions in a little bit. I want to talk to Lily about a few more things, but welcome to folks who are here. Um, Just a reminder, I am recording this. So if you come on to ask questions, that'll be recorded. There's this podcast network this is a part of called Spacecast, which you should go subscribe to. Um, It'll be on there in probably within a day. Um, So, you know, look forward to that. Um, So uh, next question for you, Lily, is let's come back to one of your um, theses that got you some attention a couple years ago that I've always liked. And it's this idea of the of the Bitcoin rationalist, you know, the person who sees um, Bitcoin and its sort of value thesis as the most reasonable view to extremely strong gains for, you know, one of these cryptocurrency product projects. A, let me know if I have that thesis right. And B, if it's evolved or expanded since you said it a couple of years ago and, and how you think it relates to, to today. Sure. Yeah, I still do think that long term uh, Bitcoin is if you're going to buy one thing and then go disappear to an island and never uh-huh. be able to it again. Right. If that's the extreme standard, I would say, OK, you know, of all of the choices out there right now, do Bitcoin. Uh I don't think that um, that it is the only thing out there because I think that the blockchain world has become uh, has become you know it's a foundational technology upon which um, it's really become a category of technologies upon which many different use cases can be built, and one of those is this kind of store value and then extensions beyond that, but the core value proposition being you know the digital gold uh, the digital gold thesis. And, and, you know, that fits very well for, you know, very large market, which is, um, which is demand for a digital store of value. But that is different from some of the other applications that we're starting to see. And that's because of the very sort of well-recognized and debated um, for years, uh, technical properties of Bitcoin. And I think they're pretty hard to ignore. And so I think that when, uh, when sort of purists in the space debate, Bitcoin versus Ethereum and debate them with a sort of foregoing assumption that they are, because they all have a blockchain and they are all part of this, you know, at this point, nascent industry, that they're directly competitive with one another. To me, that's a little bit like saying the internet can really only be about Google or Facebook. It can only be a search engine or it can be a social uh, social media network and presuming that anything built on the internet directly competes with one another. 
so I think that the tent of what you can do in blockchain has um, has expanded substantially. And so what I find is that when people are having these discussions, um, sometimes I feel like, uh, and, and also because these discussions are all out in the open, right? And all happen remotely and, uh, and there's you know, no shortage of public pontificating. I think that oftentimes you find um, people, you know, kind of uh, an analogy that you're, you're all playing on the same field, but some people are playing soccer and other people are playing handball. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and so you'll find, um, I think most, uh, most certainly not all folks who are primarily Bitcoin oriented, um, I think implicitly are oriented more about um, uh, things related to financial security um, and really that things that really tie into a store of value thesis, right? And are and that's where the hodling kind of meme comes from. And uh, there's you know no shortage of a religious uh, element to it, right? And I think that's uh, and so so if you're talking specifically about what's the most likely to hold its value for a long term buy and hold, right? Which is you know frankly a strategy that in for example traditional finance and institutional investors is still number one strategy, then that would still be Bitcoin in my mind. If you're talking about decentralized applications, DApps, which you know for a while were mm, fairly experimental and more proof of concept than than you know ready for prime time. Uh, if you're talking about um, decentralizing uh, um, more sort of everyday use cases, then um, I, I would be surprised if anyone argues that Bitcoin's the best way to do that because it's not. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I really, one thing I want just want to, a comment I want to make is I, I like you making the point about kind of Facebook versus Google um, because, you know, the whole point of the internet at the beginning, right, was that like there were networks and some guys were like, well, what if we made the networks interoperable, interoperable and internet, right? So we make them, you know, work together. And that turned out to be really useful. Um, and that's like the core idea of the internet. So you would think we would think of stuff built on top of it that we should sort of continue to like operate with that framework. But there is there is that resistance. And, you know, there's the, the funny thing, the thing I would sort of be curious about your take on with the, the, the HODL narrative um, is... I mean, obviously, there's a point at which you stop hodling. I mean, even if you're waiting for hyper Bitcoinization, I mean, someday, you know, you buy a house. I mean, every, every, you do something with it, right? You buy a house with your Bitcoin or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Like, um, 
Like, I don't, do you do you ever ask that question to people? Do you have a take on that? Like, you know, <laughs> the HODL narrative obviously is false at some point. Um, so, how do how do folks deal yeah. with that? Uh, yeah. So it's um, and it's a it's a uh, terrible choice to make because yes, uh, in the near term, you can go buy your ho- your buy yourself a house, whatever is going to enhance your life in the moment. Because after all, Bitcoin aside, you've got one life to live. Uh, but then whoever does that, you know, whether it's 12, 18, 24 months later is, um, uh, has, uh, Romo regret of missing out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a very careful choice to, choice that you have to make. Um, but, uh, everyone has their own circumstances. And, um, and so I fully support folks, you know, I've certainly done this myself, um, selling a bit so that you can finance a lifestyle that you, know, you want. And I've also met numerous people who um, won't touch it for anything and uh, as a result live this kind of barbell life where their lifestyle is rather frugal and they're sitting on this huge cash of bitcoin Mm -hmm. so you know that's cool uh that's that's their choices and um and one of the things that i have always really appreciated about crypto and i think even more so in the last uh year or two is that it's kind of about it's you know by default you do you right because i can't you can't really do anything about the choices that people make because it's all self custody. Uh, and, uh, and I think that there is a, uh, valuable cultural component to that, um, uh, because it just shifts, it shifts the default state, um, where you have to respect that, uh, people make their own choices and they also live and die by them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, just as a side note, um, uh, in the popular media, the um, the characterization of all this kind of crazy trading that happens, and yes, there's aspects of it, ap- uh, you know, pretty degenerate, so on and so forth. Um, but it's almost universally framed as a bad thing, right? People are going to lose their shirts, people are going to get wrecked, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people are going to end up living in the gutter, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, but it's almost universally bad. Um, but what I've sensed is that uh, there's, and I'm still trying to sort of figure out how to characterize this, but I think there is in uh, some interesting cultural elements that are coming out of this because what you've got is you've got with trading, it's essentially the largest multiplayer uh, esport or online game out there, uh-huh. right? Where <laughs> instead of uh, you know like the, the the shooter games or something like that right? We just all look at red and green bars. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and then, you know, so slacks and discords and various, you know, troll boxes. Um, and there's, um, so to the extent that you think that, you know, platforms and experiences, uh, become significant when there are sort of, when there's like, you know, real emotion involved, right. And it's like a new form of experience and how people experience the things. I think that is absolutely true with, um, with, crypto trading right and it's actually um uh i find to be a pretty uh you know actually a lot of a lot more positive emotions and negative emotions so for example when uh what was it two or three weeks ago when there was that massive sort of 50 percent drop in the span of a few days um i felt like i was already living in virtual reality right i was sitting there um around the clock in probably 10 different chat rooms and you know some people you know a lot of people you probably don't know and uh and you know tons of hilarious memes floating around actually highly entertaining and it was somewhat bizarre to me that amid this you know pretty catastrophic movement in the market uh there's actually quite a bit of um of commiseration Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the world is um, like that. Oh, sorry, you kind of cut out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, commiseration. And, uh, yeah, commiseration. And dare I even say an element of community and even sort of a, a very surprising amount of positive emotion that came out of uh, what was probably a pretty painful event for, you know, certainly more than 50% of the people in, in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that that was quite interesting that um, there's actually quite a bit of unification um, in whether you want to call it this big game. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, for me, I'm trying to figure out where that goes, but I do think that there is something sort of significant brewing there. Yeah, no, totally. Though I will say, I mean, it, it, I, and I know what you mean, especially those moments in which everyone's like riding the roller coaster. You can, you can, even though I don't really participate in those same things that you are, I can, I can see it and feel it though. There is a point. One of the things I thought was weird at Coindesk, you know, when I was, um, there in the bear market is, you know, we're pretty sheltered from uh, the ups and downs of the market, really. Like, we have the same job either way. You know, we report the news mm-hmm. on what's going on. And um, obviously, we do some events um, that, you know, could suffer if everything really went apart. But, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky in that our, bi- our big event consensus, it's pretty, it's got a pretty safe, um, pretty safe, you know, audience to it. Um, and obviously we're, we're owned by someone who's, you know, he's not, he's, he's, he's hodling us for a, a long term. So it, it isn't like, a, um, it isn't like it's on a day-to-day basis. Like, you know, we're in, in big danger and yet, and yet even at coin, well, even at Coindesk and hardly anyone on Coindesk staff owns significant amounts of cryptocurrency either, because, you know, for, especially on the editorial side that I'm on, you know, I mean, people have a little bit, you know, we, we disclose it, but it's not much. It's not, we're not, you know, we don't have deep bags. And, um, but you could still feel the mood even at, even at Coindesk. Like it got to us. Like at a certain point, if it goes on long enough, you know, I think it spreads to everyone, and, and folks are just kind of down, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you disagree. I felt that like we were kind of bummed out even there, even though we weren't directly really connected to it, in, you know, financially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The swings are um, certainly more intense because it's when price goes down a lot, volume also goes down, and so it really accentuates um, the the peaks and the troughs. Um, so there's like a, a kind of like second order effect that, that happens. And so that's why volume, uh, from peak, peak to trough was down in some cases, like 90, 90, 90 or 95%. Um, but I think that, um, I do think that this current drawdown, uh, I don't, I don't know if we can call it a bear market necessarily. Uh, but this current drawdown, I think is, um, I don't think we're going to have a, a three year kind of disappearance, Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a three year sort of, uh, you know, march through march through the Arctic, <laughs> like happened twice before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that there's because uh, previously, if you think about 2013. Right. So you had a handful of really sketchy exchanges uh, that, you know, either were trying to sell your money or did see your money. And it was really, really hard to get on and off of those exchanges. And all you could do was basically buy Bitcoin and sell it. Mm-hmm. And I think Litecoin maybe came along at one point. That was kind of like the second one out there. But that was it. All you could do is just buy and sell. And 
Although I will note on some uh, some U.S. exchanges, because of the whole sort of restriction on margin, um, even today, that's uh, largely what you can do to buy and sell, mm-hmm. uh, but just for a lot of assets. Uh, and then 2017, you had this, you know, tremendous outpouring of uh, shitcoin, <laughs> so-called innovation. Mm-hmm. But really, for all of them, all you could do was uh, buy and sell. Yeah. And you're just hoping it would show up one day. Yep, totally. Yeah. Yep, exactly. But all you could do is buy and sell. And once you were out of it, you were out of it. And then the stablecoin um, economy was also fairly, you know, it was really just Tether. And uh, and rightly or wrongly, there's, you know, people who flood Tether uh, for various reasons. And uh, yet Tether continues to march on. It's still the most important stablecoin in the, in the ecosystem. Um, but that's, I think, a separate conversation. So, so in 2017, you also, you know, lacked a number of different ways of staying in the ecosystem. And now I think with farming, uh, yield farming, liquidity pools, um, there's a lot of people who throughout the drawdown, they're like, well, you know, I'm going to stay in this because what are my options? Um, If I live in the U.S., I'm going to get 50 bips of interest, of annual interest on my dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And if I'm in Europe, I might even have to uh, pay to keep my money in deposits. And so there's a tax on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and so this is volatile, but, you know, fine, let me discount the 20, 50, or even higher APR. Uh, APY, and I'm still probably in a better place, right? right. So that to me is the nexus of um, new uh, new applications, new products, new value propositions, new business models with the whole macroeconomic environment that we were talking about. Uh, and when you have that, people who uh, so that's essentially a different form of hodling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and these are the sort of you know mercenary hodlers, um, but uh, that's what's supporting, um, I think. Uh, quite a bit of price this time around and will also probably fuel uh, fuel a different rebound. Yeah. Yeah. There is just so much more that you can do now. I mean, you can, you can borrow and lend money and that's been a good business for a long time and it works <laughs> and it works really nicely in crypto, you know, on Ethereum, you can, I mean, I, I borrowed a little bit of money one time and then immediately re- repaid it. And it, but it just blew my mind, you know, on mm-hmm. compound that I didn't have to tell anyone my name. You know, Mm -hmm. like I had a hundred bucks in ETH. I stuck it in. I borrowed 40 bucks or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I just had it, (laughs) you know, just like what? Yeah. Yeah, And you can just just do that. That's, you know, and so obviously people will keep doing that to some degree and it'll, it'll keep things going, you know. For sure. Um, And I think that, um, that to me is, it's still really mind blowing that we can do that. And then when you get to um, the more, you know, complex things that you can do with, you know, yield farming and, um, contributing liquidity. Um, I think that, uh, it's, it's so wild to think about what can be built on top of that. Um, and particularly now that, um, there's some new protocols out there, which allow you to have, which you know, provide speed and, and cost effect, uh, cost effectiveness, which really does matter. Right. Um, in trading speed and cost are in, in transactions are you know, kind of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and so to me, a liquidity pool is, um, is at its, at its core, like the most basic building block of finance. If you think about the role of banks, yes, you know, in the past, we've talked a lot about it being about trust and so on and so forth. Who do you trust your money with? And who do you trust to say that, you know, Brady owns how much and Lily owns how much? Uh, but it's also, you know, their core function is to manage the risk and, you know, trust such a reputation 
interpretation of liquidity pools. And what we have now is um, with you know, these various AMMs and so on and so forth is like really scale um, in production substitutions for liquidity pools. And it's really not a leap to go from there and think about how you start connecting these these liquidity pools and cross margin between them, lending, right? So many of the things that I would say the most kind of scale implementation in crypto right now is probably on Bitfinex and uh, and FTX, right? Where essentially users are lending to one another uh, because you don't have bank intermediaries that typically do that function on a much larger scale, uh, which is, you know, why we have or had LIBOR and at one point had faith in it. And then we realized that they were scamming everyone. Um, (laughs) And so, so it's really not uh, that much of a leap before uh, you have liquidity pools and start to connect them um, and start to replicate uh, the way, you know, liquidity pools work in traditional finance today to start with. And then once that's kind of done and complete, and then, you know, everyone on Wall Street kind of freaks out, um, and or wants to join and and or tries to put them on a private blockchain or something like that. Um, then I think where you're, you know, maybe a few years, a few years from now, where you really get is, um, to me, a fascinating space where you start to build out all manner of entirely new financial products out there as well. Um, and, uh, and that is, I, I think there, there's going to be sort of things that are more institutional level and institutional grade first. Um, so things like, uh, potentially cross margin between pools, right? And I think you're starting to see the the the, big, the beginnings of that with some of the protocol upgrades to try to make um, capital a little bit more efficient between uh, between liquidity pools. That's essentially you know starting to connect liquidity pools and uh, and um, and uh, and you know but I don't know exactly how they do that. I haven't looked into that, but that's a start. Uh, but then if you start to get into the consumer space, then you can imagine um, all sorts of new uh, maybe consumer finance products you could build on top of a liquidity pool, right? Because fundamentally what it is is people opting into this pool um, and uh, swapping in and out of it. So you could, you know, for example, build um, uh, you know, mutual aid societies, social insurance, social, insur- social insurance products, um, and, uh, and, you know, many, many other uh, other things, and if you start to integrate the concept of oracles, right, connecting uh, real world or offline data into uh, into the blockchain ecosystem, then I think you start to see some really interesting. Where well, I think you can imagine, uh, we're not going to see it for a while, but I think uh, you can start to imagine some really interesting innovations. Yeah, and well, yeah, and I think we're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff and stuff that can only exist with this technology. Um, mm-hmm. So I just want to say to the folks who are in the room, uh, we'd love to bring a few of you up. Um, just go ahead and request to be a speaker now if there's something you'd like to talk about related to what we've said. If you want to, you know, pick Lily's brain on a, you know, a big, you know, macro topic, you know, a, a particular Bitcoin thesis you have, you know, uh, do that. Um, open to comments too. just whatever you say, keep it short. But before before we um, do that, I'll, I'll just start letting people on as you request it. Um, but I, I want to hear a little bit about um, Operation Masks and kind of the story of you getting <laughs> involved in that lily and kind of what's up with it now you know as 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 covid started to really kick in um that's a project you kicked off and and um and and i've even seen you kind of relate it to your crypto thesis too which i think is also interesting so where is that at and kind of what's this what's your story on on that on that project yeah sure so when um when covid started i would say what was it march or something Mm -hmm. uh 
you know, the world was really melting and it's, uh, for now, you know, now everything is more or less normalized, but I remember, um, no one could get anything. We're telling doctors to wear bandanas and there was untold fraud and just shenanigans. Um, and, uh, and it was this really, um, pretty unfortunate situation where, so Wuhan, uh, is actually, uh, like one of the epicenters of PPE production in the world. Mm. <laughs> And so what are the chances that the epicenter of PV production shuts down when the entire world suddenly needs to oh, get like 100x the amount of PPE, right? right, right no yeah. one plans for that. Right. And and neither, I, I also don't think it's reasonable that people would plan for that, right? Because mm-hmm. it's such a, block, uh, such a black swan type of scenario. Anyway, so it happened. And, um, and so a few friends and I initially thought we should help our friends were doctors and didn't really want to wear bandanas in the middle of a, you know, aerosol transmitted, um, you know, uh, viral pandemic of unknown, uh, of unknown kind of, uh, um, fatality. Right. So, uh, so we kind of band together and a bunch of us who've known each other for a long time, half of us in China, half of us here, um, we, uh, started to ship stuff. And it's, you know, kind of one thing became another. And before I knew it, we were working with a number of state governments. And then that took on a life of its own because uh, if you're shipping masks, for example, to the state of Illinois, you better be pretty darn sure not you're not shipping them counterfeit goods, right? That's extremely bad. Mm-hmm. And, and But the problem is that all of the distributors... And typically you've got the factory and they've got like 20 distributors or whatever. And if you have, you know, most people actually buy through distributors. What happened was everyone got really greedy overnight. So all of the distributors went bad and were selling fake stuff. Hmm. So, so therefore we kind of had to jump in, you know, layer level by level. And we even had to build out production capacity at, um, at, uh, one of the, you know, small handful of N95 factories in China. Mm-hmm. And so there was only, you know, maybe three factories that would even entertain expanding production. And so we had to, you know, finagle our way into one of them. We did that and uh, did a few other things to try to get our hands on the stuff and try to go straight to the source. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, um, it it took on a much larger life than we had originally planned. But I think it was the right thing to do. And you kind of got involved in, um, like, trying to redesign masks, too, right? You were looking to sort of read like sort of make them more universal right you know um i thought about it but now that i um you know probably know more than i ever cared to know about n95s okay (laughs) i actually think that um so i think a couple of things about masks uh and you know there's obviously been a lot of debate about masks um from the very beginning i always thought you know if i'm going to wear a mask it's kind of inconvenient not so comfortable if i'm going to wear a mask i'm going to wear a proper mask in 95 uh because the cloth masks don't really work the two most important things about a mask are that they filter and they fit your face because if it doesn't fit your face and you're basically letting all sorts of stuff in and you know there goes the filtering Mm -hmm. so um and then you know if you think about like the thought experiment of um you know, yes, it filters, but then the second most important feature is that it's breathable, right? Because mm-hmm. the thought experiment is you could take a piece of plastic, put it over your mouth, 100% filtering, right. small problem, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You can't breathe. And and so that is really like the feature trade-off of masks. And yes, there's aesthetic and things like that, but that's really the technical feature trade-off of masks, filtering and breathability. And no one ever talked about that. And no one ever talked about the relative quantitative performance of a cloth mask versus a surgical mask versus an N95 
And so this whole sort of binary debate that we kept on having, right? Oh, well, you know, uh, masks work or they don't. Well, masks can be different. And then, you know, what really killed me was when the CDC came out and told people double mask. Mm-hmm. That was ridiculous mm-hmm. because what they were aiming at is, okay, is I, this idea that a mask in order to be effective has got to fit and it's got to be filter and it's got to filter. And I was like, Hey guys, we've got a solution for that. It's called an N95. You, the CDC yourselves regulate the standard through the national Institute of occupational safety and health. It is a part of the CDC and your entire mission in life regulating and uh, regulating N95s has been to optimize the trade off between fit, fit and filter. And, uh, and somehow, like, people just really miss that, right? And so, you know, especially here in California, there's no shortage of people who double mask walking around outside uh, on their own. Oh, man. Um, and so, so as I looked around, basically, I thought, actually, you know, we don't really need a lot of innovation on this because people have been developing N95s for 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you just got to choose the one that fits and filters for your face, and everyone's face is different. So, anyways, a far... A, far ways away from Bitcoin, but that was um, very much a topic for me over the last year. And um, If anyone wants to join us, you have a question or whatever, um, please join us now. We'll probably wrap up in, in just a few minutes. But I'm curious also about your take on, I mean, I think I can explain this, but I'd be curious about your explanation. So looked at in an extremely simple way, I feel like the crypto world and even in particular, the Bitcoin world has been a little weird about COVID because like early on certain like really important OGs, including one who, you know, and probably the one who's most known for this, that you're super close to Balaji Srinivasan were like way early on. Everyone should probably take this more seriously than they are. And Mm -hmm. I was one of those people hearing them and just being like, ah, chill out. It'll be fine. I'm going to South by Southwest. Who cares? <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, I, I was, I was, I wasn't as skeptical as long as everybody else was because I'd been listening to all these things, but I still was skeptical longer than I'm proud of myself for being. Um, mm-hmm. and so I feel like in a, in a lot of ways, crypto, I mean, certain people in crypto like Balaji, like Ryan Selkis, like Jay Kwan and a bunch of other people who like listen to them were all beating this drum. And a lot of people weren't listening. Yep. Yeah. And then they turned out to be very much right. But then I don't know if you agree with me on this. I feel like late in COVID, a lot of people in crypto were like, you all are taking this way too seriously. YOLO, you know, like, I don't know. Am I wrong? Was it just different camps? Like, did you see it that way? It was a little little weird to me, you know? know, That's uh, honestly, that's how I've been. Um, When China shut down um, uh, Wuhan and then basically the entire province, Uh, I was like, this is very, very, very bad guys. Mm -hmm. And they certainly know something that we don't know. And I had a number of people say to me, oh, well, you know, that's China's authoritarian state. Did you know, by the way, they've got social credit and they track everyone through cameras. No, 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 no. This is just par for the course. I was like, no, guys, this is not par for the course. Right. I lived in China for long enough uh, and interact with enough government officials and kind of understand sort of what motivates our government. This is not normal. Right. They certainly know something that we don't know. And by the way, they've probably been hiding something for several months and then they realize they couldn't hide it anymore. And it's very bad. So so when that happened, I was like, OK, you know, it is unknown and it's I'm gonna say it again. Very bad. <laughs> and so February 5th is when I started to stockpile PPE for my own purposes, mm-hmm. uh, my family and everything, because uh, I was like, you know, this is uh, this is going to come to us shortly. And then February 15th is when there was a case of community spread in Sacramento. And people were still pretending that 
you know, wasn't going to come to us and, you know, it's China's problem. <laughs> it's like, guys, this is going to explode in a pretty bad way very quickly. And we're still in like the denial phase. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, but I think that, um, that kind of extreme caution, um, within people in crypto, um, I would make two observations about it. One is that, you know, it's no surprise that people in crypto are, um, are skeptics of, um, of heavy handed governments. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and are uh, and also have uh, just like a uh, and are sensitive to these types of things. Um, I think that's one. Um, and then also, you know, thought about it as this is just unknown right now, right? And so we don't know uh, what the impact is going to be. All we know is that people in Wuhan are um, seem to be you know dying in the streets right now. And mm-hmm. so, you know, is it is this you know. Yeah, 10x worse than the flu is it 100x worse than the flu so why don't we kind of wait and see mm-hmm. um, and then uh later on you got therapeutics you got vaccines you know i think that we did a tremendous job here in the u.s we i mean we really just killed the one thing that the the most important thing which is to get our get vaccines mm-hmm. um and uh and then i think at a certain point it's kind of like okay well you know you can't live under you can't live under a rock forever so you know for example me i went from <laughs> I mean, I was like barely leaving the house. And if I was, I mean, I looked ridiculous. I was like a Tyvek suit. I'm going to admit it. Um, oh, I wow. was, yeah. I mean, middle of February, I was going to Costco with like, I basically looked like I, wa- I wa- walked out of a painting spray booth. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. And I just didn't care. I was like, I've, I've no, I've no pride to either, you know, to, to salvage in public, you know? So I was doing that uh, now. And after I sold masks for a year. Now I don't wear them myself. Hmm. Yeah. Just, just because you feel like, I mean, it is true. Like, I mean, you know, like one of the things I kept noticing in the second wave and I would talk to people about, it, I was just like, look, the second wave is like way, or maybe it was the third, I don't know, is like way worse than the first. It's even like really bad here in New York, but hospitalizations were dramatically down. Deaths were mm-hmm. way, way down because we sorted out how to treat people and stuff. So no, I feel that, but it just, it, it does, I don't know, it's, it was a little bit of a, it was a little jarring to me, but I mean, I, you know, I changed too, and I wasn't quite as intense as you are, or maybe I was, I mean, I really didn't, I definitely didn't really see anyone for a hundred days once I was con- con- convinced, other than going to my corner grocery store, that's all I did, and I would go really early in the morning when Harley Union was there, and, you know, <laughs> like that kind of stuff, so uh, that's all I yeah. did for a hundred days, I'm not very social yeah. anyway, but, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, that's- yeah, that's uh, the first 30 days as well. I mean, when we were locked down, like my mom was going to the grocery store. I put an auto brain, like car tracker in her car so I'd get alerts if she left. I mean, uh, I was like pretty intense about it. And then I flipped, you know, over time I flipped right back to um, like, you got to live your life. And I think that there's, um, I think one of the aspects of sort of uh, the, the culture debates that are ongoing is um, what is inappropriate risk tolerance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, the zeroists, as some people have called them, right? Oh, right. you know, there's a lot of people, oh, look at Taiwan, Hong Kong, Asia, they're so much better than us because they have zero cases of COVID. Well, it's just a different, uh, it's a different equilibrium. And people value, there, there, is, there are different values that people have and different tolerances, uh, and also just a different sense of social cohesion. And so as a result, we end up with a different set of trade-offs here. And, um, and so... And I think you even see that between, you know, the the West Coast of America or the blue states and the red states. Um, but for me, I just don't think it's practical to have zero tolerance for risk for, you know, everything. It's an unreasonable expectation, right? 
Uh, and I think that's also one of the reasons why, um, maybe it's not surprising, I found my way into crypto and kind of stomached all the various twists and turns. Uh, and I, I do believe that um, the, this, this dramatic interest in trading crypto also stems from people who embrace risk versus mm-hmm. people who don't. Yeah. And yeah. that's okay, you know? That's a good point. And that's going to be a conversation that is going to come up as it's, I mean, who knows? I'm working on a story on this right now. Um, but it does, it does look like there's going to be some COVID fallout from Bitcoin Miami. And obviously the mainstream is going to be very understandable about that for crypto and there won't be any unreasonable stories about it. Um, but that is the next conversation we get to have about Bitcoin and we're going to start having it like tomorrow. So everyone should look forward to that. Um, Uh-oh. are you hearing, uh, are you hearing some fallout from non-socially distanced club? Uh, oh yeah, no, definitely. Activity? Yeah, yeah. There's de- people are already saying on on Twitter like, "Oh, uh, lol, I, I got COVID in, in uh, Miami," and uh, <laughs> I think a lot more people aren't saying it. And I've started poking around on that and getting a little confirmation of that. I don't know. You, Bloomberg just put out a really stupid, embarrassing story about it. They really had no sourcing and were just like, "Bitcoin was a super spreader event." I mean, I'm exaggerating somewhat what they said, but they also, even if it does turn out that that was true, their sourcing on that story was was not mm-hmm. enough to run with it. We had it too, and we didn't post anything. Um, yeah. So. Um, But anyway, well, this has been great, Lily. Uh, Thanks a ton for talking to me. For folks listening, I do these roughly every Tuesday and Thursday. I have um, I have one scheduled for the next couple of weeks. So that's that's all coming soon. Um, I think uh, uh, I can't remember what the next one is. I should have that in front of me, but it's going to be great. Um, These also appear on the SpaceCast podcast network. So look for SpaceCast pod on Twitter. Um, You should follow it. It's a lot of different tech conversations, but they're all these sort of live conversations like this one um, on Clubhouse and Twitter spaces. Um, So again, thanks a ton, Lily. Thanks for everyone who was here and uh, have a great night. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening. Peace. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.